Glasta. It's a beautiful winter day, right before Christmas 2017. And I have with me with with me there. I have with me today one of my favorite Gloucester people, a very interesting fellow named Jim Watson. Welcome to Fishtown Local. Fishtown Local. I'm glad to be here. That is great. Well, I have known Jim for bloody ever. The first time I ever met you was as a sailing instructor at the Eastern Point Yacht Club. Oh, yeah. That was many moons ago. And before I go back to that, I want to ask you, you were then, uh, was that the 70s or 80s? Uh, yes, it was 1974. Wow. But you you, you were I was, from Gloucester, per n- se. No, no, no. I, when I was in college, my family moved to Manchester. Oh, and Wait, Manchester or Manchester by the Sea? Uh, Manchester oh, by the Sea. It wasn't by the sea then, was it? It wasn't it by, was the, by sea. the tracks. Right. It was Gloucester <laughs> by the smell, but not Manchester by the Sea. Who <laughs> <laughs> calls it Manchester by the tracks? <laughs> so, um, yeah, when I was in college, my parents moved. We, we lived in Connecticut, and my parents moved to Manchester. And so when I came home, from vacation yeah. in college for summer, yeah. I had to find a job. So I looked around for jobs teaching sailing, and um, I taught one ye- one year in Manchester. And then in 1974, I um, I got uh, I wasn't planning on coming back, and I was like, I'm staying in Oregon. Yeah. I was at the University of Oregon, <laughs> and and, um, and I kept getting these calls from somebody with, at Eastern Point Yacht Club. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm doing the Bermuda race. I'm coming home, but I'm not staying. So finally they called again, and they had this cute girl on the phone, and she was begging me to come and work at Eastern Point Yacht Club. And so I finally says, okay, I'll do it, but I can't start until after the Bermuda race because they're already committed to doing the race and bringing my family boat home. Which is a mid-June kind of thing? Late June. Late June, okay. So, man, I wouldn't probably be home until the 3rd or 4th of July. Wow. Yeah, but that's not, they don't really kick it off till the very end of June, beginning of, in terms of the classes. Right, but that yeah, was my, perfect. I couldn't yeah. say yes without yeah. telling them up front. The caveat, yeah. So uh, they said, okay, no problem, we'll, we'll figure out how to get Now, you. they didn't say, we will guarantee you, you will meet your future wife on this job. No, that, that wasn't part of it. That play would have scared me away. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but as it turned out, they could have said that, couldn't they? Uh, they could have, because I came... Um, you know, interestingly enough, uh, on the trip back from Bermuda, I brought with me David and Grace Murray, oh. who are really longtime Gloucester folks. David just died last month. Is that Dirt Murray's dad? Dirt Murray's father. Whoa. So Grace and Dave, who are real, were really good friends of my parents, at that time had never done an ocean passage. And so they were really interested in coming and doing an ocean passage, like you did with yeah, me coming, coming back home. from Bermuda. But wait, did you race down on another boat and then no, bring your my, family boat? On oh. our, my family boat. Oh, you went both ways. Yeah. Wow. It was called Despel, and we kept it in, in um, Manchester. Oh. We raced to Bermuda, and then I brought the boat home. And oh. Dave and Grace came. Was it a wood boat? No, no, it was That's, a fiberglass, yeah, Cal, yeah. Cal 39. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, we got back, and um, I... It was like the 3rd of July, and nothing's going on the 4th. So on the 5th of July, I hopped on my bike, and I rode from Manchester to, to Eastern to Point, Point Yacht yeah. Club. And um, I I started working. And my co, co-director was Leah Donovan, who had worked there for many years, was 
then left and came back as sort of a an in-between college and grad school kind of summer. And um, she'll admit it to this day. Of course, she hated me because <laughs> I was late and she had to get started without me. And then I got there and I said, why do we have a two-hour lunch break? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? So I immediately <laughs> changed everything. And she's like, Argh. And um, But wait, speaking of lunch breaks there, was that the old snack bar which was down from behind the building in that little sort of basement window where you'd go to the window and collect all the goodies? Uh, it, yeah, it wasn't I, I up can, on the porch by then. I, I hardly think. remember where yeah. it was. They had the best snack bar, 25-cent hamburgers. And, and it was free lunch for the instructors. Oh, for of course, guys, nobody yeah. told me, yeah. so I showed up with my own lunch, yeah. <laughs> which was a, a mango because my grandparents had just come up from Florida and they had a whole crate of mangoes. So I'm sitting there eating a the mango, and she's looking at me like, who is this yeah. guy? She must have liked he doesn't that, know there's a free yeah. lunch. Yeah. He doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to do that. He's eating some weird thing I've never seen before. And she's like, what is that thing you're eating? I said, it's a mango. And she's like, I've never seen a mango before. <laughs> well, she hasn't been to the men's room then. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, we, we, had, we had a great, a great summer. And um, it was really fun. We had a really good time. And, and she thought out to you so that suddenly she started realizing, I don't hate him. I yeah, love him. It took a few weeks, and then she started to like me. Yeah. But uh, we we had to work weekends then, running the races, the 210 races. Oh. Which oh, were that Saturday, was you. <laughs> Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. And so she had it set up so one of us worked Saturday and one of us worked Sunday. And I was like, then you don't get a weekend all summer? How can I? But you go? worked Monday. No, they had we worked all week on Monday. Yeah, yeah, we worked yeah. all week. It was a full time job. Yeah, but then you had to work either Saturday or Sunday, and so she had just set it up so one of us would work Saturday and one would work Sunday. And I was like, I can't. That means I can't go on a race on yeah, a weekend. I, I can't do yeah. anything. Why don't we? Why don't we work? Why don't we alternate weekends and I'll work Saturday and Sunday, oh, and you work and you it, get yeah. the weekend off, and then you work. And she said, "Great!" So we did that. Of course, then when we liked each other, we couldn't, couldn't see each other. We couldn't see yeah. each other on a weekend. <laughs> so well, anyway. so your flexibility as a person must have been manifest with the two of you as sailing coaches. That's why you took to each other because you are not a my way or the highway kind of guy. No, you're no. usually very flexible no. in your approach to no. things. We had we yeah. had lots of fun. It was a great summer, yeah. and uh, and then that. That was it. We did, we've yeah. been together ever since. That is fantastic. Yeah. Now, you then went from where? From there to the school? How did you get an education? So I finished up uh, college in 76, so two years and later. Tufts? Is that where you were? Yeah, Tufts. Yeah. I, I uh, transferred from the University of Oregon back to Tufts. There you go. And Where did she go? She was then, she went to UVM, okay. and then she yeah. went to Memerson. Oh, so in, in the winter now graduate. you were getting closer. So she was. Yeah. She started graduate school and she be, she was going into speech pathology. Oh. And in '76, uh, it was the centennial of the invention of the telephone. And it was also our 350th. Oh, for Gloucester. Yeah. Or yeah. was that 74? No, that was maybe that was 70. Couple days. 74. Couple years. I think. Of, yeah. So uh, and Alexander Graham Bell was my great great grandfather. Yes, okay. So in 1976... <laughs> so we have you to blame. Yes. For all these interruptions. Yeah. Um, and, and so in 1976, there were lots of really cool things going on in Boston to commemorate 
hundred years of telephone of history. Telephone. Wow! And uh, and Leah was really psyched because she was going into speech pathology, and he was in speech, you know, with working with the deaf and hard of hearing, and uh, and so I was interested too. And so we went to some lectures, and we met some influential people, and we met. Uh, a professor from McGill University by the name of Dr. Daniel Ling. And he, at the time, had just published a, a book which was really revolutionizing our field scientifically. Well, I hope it was called Lingo. Lingo, no. No? Okay, no. so. But his brother Fu wrote a couple books. And <laughs> his other brother Fu Drew Ling. wrote some books, too. <laughs> That's great. You know Drew Fu? Ling, I love you. <laughs> Thanks. It took me a second. <laughs> I didn't no. get the foo laying around. <laughs> that uh, is terrific. No. So anyway, he he's uh, he was a speech scientist. He was uh, he's from England, but he was running the Montreal Oral School for the Deaf at a graduate program at McGill University. And we got talking, and he's like, "Well, you're graduating from college. What are you doing?" And I'm like. Duh. <laughs> Teaching sailing. What? I don't know. I <laughs> yeah. haven't thought about that yet. And he says, I know. And your wife isn't, she's going to be a master's in speech pathology. You guys should come to Montreal. You come to my program and, uh, and become a teacher of the hearing impaired, and I'll get your wife, Leah, a job. Well, she wasn't quite my wife then. Then, but, she, but we were it very was getting close. obvious, yeah. No, we were engaged. We got married in, later on. Though. Okay. And um, so... Uh, I said, sure. So I applied to graduate school at McGill, and she got a job in actually Vermont. Oh. So we lived in um, the eastern townships of Quebec, and I commuted with some guys to McGill, and she commuted across the border to Vermont. What again? What was your commute? Sorry about that. The boom. That was my boom audience. Sorry. Not a sonic boom from above. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's kind of like you had to go over the Tobin Bridge. <laughs> So okay. you never quite knew how long it would be, but it's typically yeah. about a half hour. Oh, my gosh. Okay, yeah. well, that could be worse. And hers is about yeah. a half hour. She had to cross the border every day, so that was kind of interesting. So you were in that part of um, Montreal where you're sort of in the modern skyscraper part up the hill. No, from... no, we were in the eastern townships. We were actually in Bromont, oh. which is where the equestrian— That's where you worked and studied, too? No. Oh. So the equestrian Olympics oh. in 1976 were in Bromont. There was a ski area there, and there's a golf course, and they had all the equestrian events. Oh. So it had just come off, this was 77, or, yeah, 77. It had just finished being sort of showcased by the Olympics. Because they had just had their expo. And what I did was I drew a, I took a compass, and I drew two circles, one starting from her job site and one from Montreal. And I, I think they were like maybe 30-mile diameter circles and where they intersected we looked for a place to live oh that's so funny and it was sherbrooke granby Bromont and that's what area. you did yeah and you got <laughs> and we found this really cute apartment it was great it was like a honeymoon for a year it was that's fabulous. a clever way to do it yeah yeah and you didn't even have to get married well we, got, we didn't have to but we did no i mean yeah. to have your honeymoon so we lived in montreal for two years or then how did you connect to gloucester schools so then we worked in pennsylvania for a year um, the first year after grad school at a clinic called the Helen Beebe Speech and Hearing Center, which specialized in working with um, deaf and hard of hearing children. And where is that? 
It's in Eastern Pennsylvania. Eastern, okay. And uh, our philosophy is we teach through hearing. So with uh, good hearing aids and parent coaching, we take very young hearing impaired kids, teach them actually how to listen. Ah, right. And so then they learn how to talk by listening. Well, not. that's the way regular, I mean, regularly that's, that's unimpaired normal people. Kid, yeah, normal you, hearing kids. You form your pattern from what you hear. Exactly. And you know what's right or wrong right. from when so, people correct you. It's what their mother told them. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, it, it was called at the time unisensory, one sense of hearing. Okay. It's now called auditory verbal. We, we've gone through... Uh, you know, several people all over the world doing the same thing, calling it something different. Yeah. So we now everybody is, has agreed on one term it's called auditory was, verbal was therapy. Was that the guy who said, come come to my school and work for me? Is that his invention, so to speak? Uh, no, he, he... He was just he, practicing the technique. His, his real uh, contribution was a book called Speech and the Hearing Impaired Child, oh. in which um, he really synthesized the science of teaching speech. Mm-hmm but acoustically, mm. not visually. Mm-hmm. So my, you know, my great-great-grandfather used vision to teach because they didn't have hearing aids. Yeah. So everything was taught through vision and touch mm-hmm. and orthographic symbols. Mm-hmm. Bell's father actually created a whole orthography of all the human speech sounds. And so he could, he could write these symbols down and his sons or anybody that was familiar could actually produce the sound, whatever it was. So Alexander Graham Bell was involved in teaching hearing impairment himself? This is his himself. father. Oh, oh yeah. his father. Yeah. His father was oh. and he was. Oh, that's so interesting. And so anyway, he... So you're related to Mac Bell then? <laughs> uh, different family. <laughs> I'm just family. kidding. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, the... Um, where, where was I on? You were about to talk about your other famous family. You said we've done the Alexander Graham Bells. Are you not a Grosnover? Uh, Grofner. Oh, sorry. I thought it was Grosnover. I don't mean to be glossing no. over your Grosnover. Uh, so say it again. Gro- well, just Grovner? Grovner. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, Bell had two daughters. One married Gilbert Grovner. The other married David Fairchild. Okay. And uh, Gilbert Grovner was the first editor of the National Geographic magazine. But at that time, the National Geographic was created by Bell and about 15 scientists in Washington. Wow. And they got together and they wanted to create a scientific journal wow. on geography. And they, wow. And so it was, it was created as a um, scientific journal by a whole bunch of folks in Boston, I mean in, um, in Washington. And when they started publishing the journal, they wanted somebody to, you know, kind of edit it and put it together and make sure it got printed. And, and you were too young. And go to the printer <laughs> yeah. and, and get it from the printer yeah. and make sure it gets mailed out. And they were all, they were just like the board of directors. Mm-hmm. They weren't yeah. doing the dirty work. Right. They were writing the articles and stuff. So that my uh, uh, great-grandfather, who was then just out of um, college uh, from Amherst, uh, was somehow got to be a family friend and they hired him to do it to be the first editor okay. right out of college and then he um he fell in love with the uh, subject Elsie <laughs> Bell yeah. and and then married her at some point so Elsie Bell I like that my great 
grandparents were Gilbert Grosvenor and Elsie Bell. Okay. So that's and was Gilbert part of uh, GO2? I mean, did the family stay in the game, as they say? So uh, they had uh, five children. The oldest was my grandfather, Melville Grosvenor. Mm-hmm. Melville Grosvenor was the editor of the Geographic for wow. 40 years, wow. I think. He, you know, he, he created the first color photographs. Yes. He put the first photograph on the cover. Mm. So he, his influence is really powerful on the oh, magazine. Yeah. My and grand, you had a lifetime my subscription, right? Um, well, yeah, I, I, if I asked him and gave him my address, he would send <laughs> That's great. But there's, are there any Grosnovers still involved? Sorry, I said it again. Are Gro- there any Grosnovers Gro- 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 still? Well, my uncle, so my grandfather's right. son, Brother. Gilbert yeah. Grosnover, is retired from oh. the – he was chairman of the board emeritus, and now he's pretty much retired. Wow. But he – he does some of the Lindblad explorer trips with wow. them. And stuff. Well, you have followed in the adventuring footsteps of your relatives by also spreading your hearing technique teaching efforts abroad, have you not? Well, so anyway, we got to Easton, and then we decided we wanted to come back to this area. And so I called Dr. Ling in Montreal. I said, you know, we're thinking about moving back to Massachusetts, maybe the North Shore, and we're we're um, we'd really like to move back there and we're just wondering if you had heard of any job opportunities or anything going on in in Massachusetts and he says wait a minute and I'm like this is kind of funny it's a Friday (laughs) afternoon and he put me on hold I was chatting with the secretary because I knew her from school it was only a year after graduation he comes back on the phone he goes yeah you know what I have two families from Gloucester in my office right now. They've been here all week as part of my week-long families come and get diagnosed and and treated and suggestions for yeah. Suggestions for the future. Both the both the families live in Gloucester and they want their kids to go to Gloucester schools, but right now there's no program in Gloucester. So they have to go to the Beverly School for the Deaf. So I think they would like you to come and work there. So I said, great. So I contacted the city of Gloucester and the SPED director was Diane Eisenberg at the okay. time. And she said, well, you got to come in for an interview and tell me what you're going to do. And wow. I came in, had an interview. And they so said, you sped right over. They said, go ahead, start yeah. a program. So wow. I started a program from nothing. And wow. And so what year was this? 1980. 1980. Wow. And so I ran the program until the end of 2013 when I retired, and now uh, we hired Amy Natola, who is filled in for me. But so for the last, um, you know, 37 years, kids in the city of Gloucester have been able to learn through their hearing. Any kids that are deaf and hard of hearing mm-hmm. have had the opportunity to uh, learn how to talk and listen and be mainstream in regular school. Yes, it's so hard because they never hear the sounds, except well, in your audio method, they must hear some of the sounds. Well, th- with hearing aids yeah. or cochlear implants, there you go. they have access they to can, sound. Yeah, that's great. Um, oh, boy. And so that's part of, part of the therapy is, is identifying the sounds that they may not hear well acoustically and, and helping them mm-hmm. learn what those speech sounds are in 
in running speech mm-hmm. and how to produce them. That's and right. To, well, that's how they teach know. it, phonics, right? See the letters, make the letter sound, connect yeah. them up. So all the students I worked with, you know, would go to regular school. So my job really was uh, with preschoolers, would be working with preschoolers and their parents. Wow. And then when they went to school, I would work with the teachers and work with kids one-on-one in the schools. And it probably worked out pretty well where they would use your instructions and were able to get the kid integrated into the program. Well, it works great because yeah. they're they're learning with their peers. And the peers usually accept it and work around the guidelines to make the kid feel included, lots usually. Of, lots I of kids think. didn't even know yeah. that they were hearing wow. impaired. And yeah. I can remember, you know, in like first or second grade, one day a kid said to me, sort of in the end of the school year, it was like, what are those things in his ear? Yeah. And so like they've <laughs> yeah. been there all year, yeah, right. right? The whole school year, and yeah. they didn't realize that uh, that's the kid great. was wearing hearing yeah. aids. Well, I so, remember a couple of times trying to call you up, and either I would get nothing for months, or I would get you, yeah, I'm in you know Australia or something. <laughs> so meaning, did you not get someone siphoned off to go and spread the gospel of your method around the world? Yeah, so Leah, my wife, works through private practice so we have a home office so she has families coming from all over new england to our office here in mm. gloucester and um so she had been doing that for years and she was like sort of ready for a, a challenge you know okay. and one of our colleagues had posted a job in new zealand and uh leah was like i want to i want to apply for that job i'm like there's only <laughs> one position oh and if we go to New Zealand and well, you get that do. job, yeah, right. I said, okay, well, New Zealand is going to have the America's Cup. Yeah. It's a great sailing place. <laughs> I, you, you can work. I'll sail. You give it to all crew. Right. So yeah. she applied for the job, and, and they said, oh, we're sorry. It was, it's filled. Oh. But my colleague who posted the job said, are you guys interested in working international? We said, yeah. She said, I'll let you know if I find it something. So a couple of weeks later, she called back, and she said, well, I have a friend that runs a clinic in Adelaide, South Australia. That's what it is. And they in need Adelaide. they yeah. South Australia just passed a newborn screening. So, uh, in the United States, we've had newborn screening for a long time, so that babies are screened before they leave the hospital. So you know if they have a hearing loss mm-hmm. at day one, essentially. But many places of the world, they didn't know they didn't do that. So the t- how does it work? You, the guy comes in and goes, "Hey, really loud," and then the kid turns his head. They say, "No problem." It's done through a very complicated uh, brainstem yeah. function. So they put a oh. they put an electrode on the forehead and a speaker on the baby's ear when they're in the in the um, new baby nursery. They do that to everybody. Oh yeah, every baby born in the United States now okay. on the screen, mm-hmm. and the the um, headphone and the Electrodes are connected to a, a computer, which generates sounds, clicks and yeah. whistles and hisses and different sounds. And the electrodes record the brainwave activity in the baby. And the uh, computer signal averages. So they, they after the, uh, enough nerve firings, they can see a pattern oh in the eighth nerve response to sound. Yes, so it's pretty... Easy to detect normal hearing. In Nor- yeah, I imagine it's harder when there's no response. If there's no response or there's a problem, then it's... Then they know it's... It looks... They, they fail the screening. And then they get they come back a few months later for a, a better screening, gotcha. if you will, with an audiologist. Yeah. yeah. 
So uh, South Australia just started doing newborn screening. But most of the programs that worked with hearing impaired kids were used to kids that three and up. Pipeline. Yeah. Because the, the average age of diagnosis yeah. two and a half, three before newborn screening. Wow. Well, with the thing about so, newborns is they're not trying to flunk the test. Like you and I when we went for our <laughs> army physical. Right. Can you hear that? What? So, you know? <laughs> yeah, so the, this clinic was trying to gear up for newborns. And they wanted somebody to help train their staff. Nice. So Leah oh, was great. hired to do that. Oh. But they also had a school-age part of the program. And they had two therapists that did itinerant work in, in South Australia. So they could travel around to schools that didn't have their own program. And they had a huge caseload. And they were like, wow, a third person. So they loved you. So they yeah. loved me. Yeah. The two therapists took yeah. their <clears throat> caseloads and divided them in half and gave me half of each caseload. <laughs> Showed me where all the kids were because I had to drive all right. over the so place. So they each got a quarter and you got a half <laughs> of the whole <laughs> Well, load. maybe it was thirds. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, were um, they using your method? The audio-based detection yeah, thing? And, yeah, they, so, they, it was, a, it was yeah. an oral program. Right. So that they were doing implants and making sure they could hear right. the sound. To yeah. Get, yeah. And so all the kids were mainstream regular schools. Yeah. And so I just, I instead of driving around the city of Gloucester and servicing kids, I drove all over South That's Australia. And, and what a tour. What a great chance to, I mean, you had kangaroos jumping over your hood, right? Oh, kangaroos are getting run over by cars all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't drive at night down They're there. They're like turkeys <laughs> out on the road. So we spent one year there and then we then came back and. Well, now, where did you, oh, did you, first of all, did you do any great racing out there? Did you get to go on the Hobart or? I didn't do the Hobart race, but yeah. I, I did one overnight race in Adelaide. The Adelaide they are Port Lincoln so race. serious there, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, way more serious yeah. even than our serious And people. I campaigned at J24 with a friend. There? In Australia. Oh, great. Yeah. Now, where did you develop your superb skills of navigation? And I will just uh, parenthetically say, when we did the Bermuda, you got us home through some very tricky currents. And uh, uh, more importantly, you got them down there through some very tricky reverse currents, I believe. Yeah. Well, because I sailed right from day one with my parents mm -hmm. and grandparents. Mm. My grandfather, you know, he wrote many articles for the Geographic yeah. uh, sailing trips on his yawl, White Mist. Okay. And I often crewed on those trips, which mm -hmm. was really fun. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm a self-taught navigator. Um, and so back in the 70s, you had to use the sextant. It was all celestial. So you did it all that way? Or you learned you that? Had, we had you to. had to. My mother used to do that. Yeah, you had no we choice. Yeah. When I learned to navigate, it was all through. I have a sextant in our house that I got her old one. Yeah. It's a beautiful piece of sculpture. They're gorgeous, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, navigating, you know, is a lot easier now because yeah. of technology. The GPS. Uh, um, now, you won the Bermuda race one year in Gaylark, the 38-foot frere. Um, uh, Swan, Swan 38. Sorry, yeah, yeah, we won the 1994 Bermuda race. Wow. Yeah. That is pretty I was really excited. Yeah. And then you won a father and son's division, didn't you? Or? Uh, okay, so in, um, in 2000, the owner of Gaylark asked me if I wanted to, to sail the boat. As captain. Because he yeah. wasn't going to go. Wow. So I said, sure. And I took the boat with... Um, Two of my kids, my brother brought one of his kids, one of the other crew brought his kids. So we had like this father-son kind yeah. of thing. It was really oh, fun. Yeah. And we were actually third overall. Wow. Overall in the whole thing. That's great. So you've had a win and a third. And the third was I was a skipper. So That's that pretty good. What's the rating on that boat? 
Oh, there was all IOR stuff I could. Oh, it wasn't yeah. like Perf today. So yeah. I was just curious because yeah. I, I wondered like Fred's got one of like '87, yeah. and I, I just wonder are you in that. I I am. Um, I really couldn't. Yeah, it was it, so long. It was a different system. I it's said. different measurement yeah. system. Now there's a movement around Boston to get rid of uh, PHRF and go with this thing. Is it IFR? Is that what it's called? I-R-C? O-R-R. O-R-R. For, That's for exactly right. Stuff, yeah. And they want to get rid of because they, they're feeling like the you get a bonus for having an asymmetrical spinnaker, which is faster and easier than the old uh, polled ones, and yet yeah. the one that's harder and worse and slower is carries penalty points. So, But apparently it is $1,000 a boat to be measured under ORR. It's Yeah, it's expensive. But this guy who is uh, the Hingham Fleet has been bombarding me with emails who he, uh, I'm a uh, high school sailing coach and so is he yeah. and so he went after all the other coaches and said i'm trying to start this this drive to get rid of uh the perf one but the i don't think it's going to work yeah the problem with perf is it's is it it's pretty entrenched as a boot yes. tin can yeah. and everybody who's there. got an interest in it has an asim so they would be voting basically against them Selves. And so, you know, you'd have to get everybody to realize it once. If we all do it, it won't hurt any of us. Exactly. But the one person that doesn't is going to continue to get the advantage. Right. So that's yeah. great. Well, you race on three or four different racing teams year-round. You race in the winter with Mark Lindsay. Yeah, we you race guys have won frostbiting. several times up against the best in Boston. Better than Boston because some of those guys like Tip Terry are Olympic uh yeah, trial uh, people. It's pretty, pretty competitive. Was on the team, and yeah, Ben Ben Richardson. kicked yeah. our butts one year. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> well, he, yeah, he, he uh, he's head of Olympic sailing for America, so yeah. that's pretty good that we can still race against him. But we we do pretty well for a couple of Gloucester guys. Yeah, and, yeah. Well, I'm hoping to get on that Bermuda race with you guys this year, but I don't know where the uh, the team thing lies, but. Uh, Anyway, so what else? We have just a few minutes left. Anything else you'd like to talk about? Your love of Gloucester, your hate of Gordo, your car, your dog? Well, we we really didn't. Grandson? We had never planned on living in Gloucester. Yeah. And um, we've been here. Oh, you have the best location. 1980. When did you buy that house? 1980? Well, we lived um, close to Beeman School for about eight years. Which isn't that far away from you. No, really close. And we used to keep our sailboat in the Mill River. Oh. And so walking back and forth, you saw uh, it. I saw this property that was up And for what sale. year did you buy it? 88. Oh, 88, because the big run-up was 86. And then everything froze for about three years yeah. at, higher, at the high prices. 88 was high. Was That's high. what I'm saying. It froze at the high prices, but nothing sold. So that eventually, as we entered the 90s, people had to come down. Yeah. But I remember they couldn't get over the fact that the thing had run up like a Bitcoin right. thing, and that they said, "Oh, we we gotta wait. It'll it'll we'll get this price." But they yeah. didn't. Well, we we really stuck our neck out, and we did everything that people say you shouldn't do. No. We bought a house without before we sold the old. Oh, one. you own two houses at once. Well, yeah. luckily, luckily we closed on the same day, so we actually owned no houses no, for a few hours. That's how you're supposed to do it, actually. <laughs> it was just it, it was just a, a, an accident. So you lived out of your car for two hours. We had a rider <laughs> truck full of furniture parked in the driveway. Oh my God. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. 
Well, that is fantastic. Well, your house is fabulous. It's, it's just, to me, it symbolizes what Gloucester, especially when people got here early, where you could find these diamonds in the rough for yeah. relatively reasonable prices that, you know, you have a piece of the rock. He it's, lives on Washington Street, but it's one of those up on a hill past Beeman where he looks out over the Mill River, and, and you've got all that land going down the hill. And our dock kids had and, a little skiff you know, that sailed. It's such fish. a beautiful house. And then it and has the right invisible the lower floor because at street level it's here but uh, when you go in your backyard you go yeah. down a whole just so it's just yeah, it looks like a two-story house from the front but yeah. from the back it's three stories. it's a three-story but so many people in Gloucester tell that have that same story to tell where they yeah. they got in early enough to just get entrenched yeah. and now um, both of our sons are married to um, Gloucester girls they have houses, one in West Gloucester, one right near us on Seal Street. What could be that? And you've got grandchildren who and come every week. Two-year-old grandkids. We just had, we had one at our house all morning. Well, right. get them out in the boat soon. She's taking a nap right now. Otherwise, I'd be <laughs> with her. Right. <laughs> well, Jim Watson, you are a font of interesting background, and there's subjects that we haven't even touched on. So oh. we might have to get him back. What do you say, guys? What do yeah. you think? Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, and I appreciate my audience in Gloucester listening in, and we hope that you will not forget us here at Fishtown Local. We'll see you next time. I'm your host, Golden Bear. Everybody dance! 